<laughs> All right, with that said, let's get into the Word tonight. I forgot to announce what we're going into this uh, now. Uh, so we finished Romans last week, and this week we are starting a new book. We're going to stay in the New Testament for, for one more book, then we'll move back over to the Old Testament, because when I was looking through what we've done on Sunday nights, since we started Sunday nights, uh, we've gone through two of the Gospels, and so now we're moving to a third Gospel. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke over the next period of time here, and uh, studying through this Gospel, and then we'll move back into the Old Testament. Uh, so with that said, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We thank you for your Word, and we ask now, Lord, that you just open up your Word to us, teach us, meet us here, Lord, and this, morning, this evening as we're speaking just about Zacharias going into the temple and you sending your messenger. Holy Spirit, we just ask for you to speak to our hearts tonight. Teach us. Inspire us from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me set the stage before we start reading the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the last prophet was 435 years prior to the announcement to Zacharias about uh, John the Baptist. So you got to back up 435 years. As the Jews speak about that period of silence from heaven, uh, we read about it even in some of the apocryphal books. Now, the apocryphal books were never considered canon by the Jews as far as Scripture goes. Uh, they were actually considered just history. And uh, it wasn't until the Council of Trent much later on in uh, in uh, more recent church history, that, that the apocryphal books were added into the Catholic Bible canon, okay? Just so you understand that. But in the Maccabees, <clears throat> they kind of state the problem is uh, when Antiochus Epiphanes had come into the temple and desecrated the altar by sacrificing a pig on the altar, uh, and uh, when, when he had done that right around 150 B.C., uh, the Jews, after throwing off the Maccabean revolt and throwing off Antiochus, they said the problem was there was no prophet to tell us what to do with the altar. Could we clean it or did we have to make a new altar? What do we do? And they were just waiting for a prophet to tell them something to do. So during this period of time, eventually we know that Herod had a rebuilding, a refurbished project on the temple. And Really, I mean, he, he really redid the whole temple mount as well as the temple. Uh, and, and the Jews were still waiting to hear from God. They were waiting for a prophet. Uh, and this, that's really an important idea for us to grab hold of because you and I are so used to having the word of God and having the testimony of the Holy Spirit in us and listening and praying and having that relationship with God. But that wasn't the case because the relationship with God came through the temple, and at the temple is where the Spirit of God dwelt for the Jewish people, uh, and then obviously anointing the prophets to speak on behalf of God to the people. And so this was a period of great silence between uh, the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and uh, the gospel, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So as we get into the gospel of Luke, there's a couple of things I want you to know. First of all is Luke's name is never mentioned as the author here in the Gospel of Luke. But we know that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and not to mention, not, not necessarily from the, the scriptural account, but from everybody in church, early church history saying, no, 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 Luke wrote this. Like they all knew who Luke was. They knew that he wrote the, these books, and they attested to his authorship of these things. Uh, Luke's name is actually, he's mentioned by name four times in the New Testament, uh, one of which is in Colossians 4.14, where Luke is uh, referred to as the beloved physician by Paul. So we know what his trade is. Now also we know that Luke was a Gentile, because in that same passage of, of Colossians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about those of the circumcision, and he lists out the people who are of the circumcision, which would be the Jews, and then after he finishes listing them out, he lists off some Gentile co-workers. And Luke is a part of that Gentile group of co-workers. So it's kind of amazing because when you take Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is the author of one quarter of the New Testament. A Gentile is the author of a quarter of the New Testament. And uh, 
And it, to me, that's pretty amazing. Now, of course, obviously, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. We, we assume that it's not Luke <laughs> because it's very Jewish. Uh, but uh, we, we don't know for sure. And one day when we get into heaven, we'll, we'll find out. Now, if Paul is the author of Hebrews, then, then Paul gets the, the most writings of the New Testament. But until that time, until we find out who the author of Hebrews is, uh, right now it goes to Luke the, as having the, the largest portion of the New Testament written by him. Now, Luke, uh, we're going to, as we get into this, I want to say that these first four verses of Luke are quite interesting. Now, I don't know enough Greek to be able to tell you this uh, from my own reading, but uh, I know how to read those who know this stuff. And uh, in the first four vi- verses of the Gospel of Luke are written in a very classical Greek. In fact, Greek scholars say that Luke's, some of Luke's writings are the, the, the best in the whole New Testament as far as the, the Greek goes. And after these first four verses in classical Greek, uh, Luke switches over to Koine Greek, which is the common Greek from that point on. So that's uh, so he changes it up, but but why is it important that he writes in this classical uh, aspect in those first four verses? Well, he's writing like the historians of his day. That that's what he's doing, and what it tells us about Luke is he's a well-educated man. He understands what he's doing, and he's really taking this seriously as he writes down this account. So, with that said, we are going to uh, oh, and let me say this. Um, when was Luke written, the Gospel of Luke? This was most likely written late 50s, early 60s, while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea. If you remember, Paul came with Luke, from uh, sailed from Corinth over to Israel, and then moved his way down to Jerusalem, was arrested at the temple, and then eventually brought over to Caesarea. He, he was there in Caesarea for two years. Uh, we assume that Luke was with him during that time. And Luke was uh, gathering all the information while he was in Israel or, or Palestine at the, at the time as it was referred to by the Romans. But while he was in the area, he was gathering all the information, interviewing the eyewitnesses and building the gospel of Luke. And then later on following that with the book of Acts. And of course in Acts we know that, because uh, Luke says that I wrote Luke the gospel first. I, I wrote that first letter and now I'm writing Acts. So that just gives us a date of writing, possibly. We, now, we don't know for sure. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into verse 1. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, we don't know who Theophilus is. It's interesting because his name means God uh, lover. And uh, some have speculated that Theophilus was actually a codename for the church. I don't think so. I think it was an actual person uh, who, who is named Theophilus. And very possibly the, the man who sponsored Luke to go forth and, and investigate these things. Uh, some speculation is that, that Luke was actually preparing this in a way as a brief, a defense for Paul. I'm not sure if that's the case or not because Luke is obviously with Paul before his arrest. Uh, he kind of comes and goes in the book of Acts with Paul. But nonetheless, uh, Paul, Luke is investigating these things to write to the most excellent Theophilus this, this title. And he, so he probably in some way was uh, some sort of uh, bureaucrat or aristocrat or somebody of high standing uh, Theophilus was. But look at what Luke says in verse 1. He, he's taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Uh, th- just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Uh, and so Paul, Luke here is very clear about what his objective is. I want to share with you all these things which have been fulfilled among us. So we know that Luke is a believer. He's considering himself as a part of 
one of us, and um, and he's joining in with those who were eyewitnesses um, and delivered these things. Now look at what it says in verse three. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. So it seems that at some point there were other letters circulating or or books and. Possibly he's referring also to the Gospel of Mark or even to Matthew. Uh, but it very possible could have also been other people in the church who had been circulating letters about the events that had happened early on in the life of Jesus Christ of the Gospel. So, And Luke is saying, okay, I, I, I want to put together this event, this account. I want to tell you all these things that have been fulfilled. But more than that, I want to give you an orderly account. Now, this is important because... Uh, from a Eastern perspective, an Eastern mind, from a Jewish mind, uh, it wasn't important to give things in, in a, a set order of timeline of events. Uh, in, in the Jewish mind, that doesn't matter. You just list the events and it could be out of time order. That's not really important. But you and I, that's really weird. We want things like what happened first, what happened next, then after that, then after that. And that's a really Western mind. That's how we think uh, in an order of timeline. And so Luke here is saying, hey, I want to give you an orderly account. I want to give you a play-by-play as these things went down, sorting it out and giving you this whole story. And so that's what he sets out to do, that Luke wants you and I, and of course ultimately he wrote it originally for most excellent Theophilus, that we would have certainty of those things in which we've been instructed. So this is an account to say, okay, I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. I've gone forward searching out the truths of these events. And I'll tell you that even to this day, although the eyewitnesses are gone, you can do an investigation yourself and find that, yeah, these events did in fact happen. The, these event, You can still go out and search today and you can look at not only place names that are mentioned, the historical records, and uh, you can look into these things yourself and still come to the same conclusion that Luke did. Of course, Luke had a benefit of having the eyewitnesses, many of which still alive in his day that he could actually interview. But um, uh, one such book that I think is worth a read if you've never read it is The Case for Christ. Uh, the Case for Christ, a wonderful book, uh, and um, Lee Strobel, uh, who was an uh, investigative journalist, uh, court reporter for the Chicago Tribune, he was uh, actually quite upset that his wife did the unthinkable and became a Christian. And uh, so he, he kind of was hounding her about it. She said, look, you know what, you're a reporter, investigative reporter, you go do your homework on it, uh, I'm going to keep believing in Jesus. And so Lee Strobel set out to say, okay, I'm going to prove this Christianity thing, just total garbage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to debunk it. It's myth, uh, and so he set out to do that. And so his book, Case for Christ, is actually an account of his interviews with different scholars and people uh, and asking these hard questions about, can like, looking for the answers of why, or looking for the reasons why we should reject Christianity, but in the end it led him to the cross and, and where he also himself became a Christian. And so it's a great book. Uh, of course, we know that Josh McDowell, McDowell also wrote a very similar, had a very similar experience where he set out to disprove Christianity and he himself also became a believer in Christ. And so we can still do these types of investigations today. All right, verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So Luke, as he begins to set the, the, the beginning of his gospel, he gives us a firm, begins to give us some firm dates. And he's basing that around kings who ruled. And so here we, he mentions Herod, the king of Judea. This is Herod the Great. We know Herod ruled from uh, 34, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And Herod the Great, is, he has put his mark on Israel. 
the guy was uh, a paranoid king. Uh, it was rumored that it was, or the, the Romans joked that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be his children, his sons, because he had murdered two of his sons. He felt threatened by them. He had murdered his wife and his first wife, and, you know, he just got rid of anybody that was a problem or that he thought was a problem. And so the Romans said, well, look, this guy's Jewish, so he won't eat pigs, so it's way better to be a pig. You know, um, they won't get killed. But uh, Herod the Great left his mark all over Judea. Of course, obviously the Temple Mount today, if you go there, it's massive. Uh, And you see the evidence of Herod the Great, Masada, Caesarea, uh, all over. Uh, Herod the Great built many great buildings, uh, including Caesarea Philippi. And so... Uh, it, Luke helps us date this to this time prior to the birth of Christ, uh, at least uh, sometime uh, before 4 B.C. Well, he notes that, that Zacharias, this man who's a priest, is of the division of Abijah, and his wife uh, was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. First Chronicles 24 gives us the divisions of the priesthood. There were 24 divisions of the priesthood. And, and why do they need these divisions? Well, twice a year, these divisions of the priesthood would come and serve at the temple. And they did the, those, uh, they ministered in the temple. Uh, and what we're going to see here in a moment is uh, Zacharias becomes the one who has to go light the uh, altar of incense, change out the incense in the temple. And uh, if you remember when we went through Exodus, and maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, the temple is divided up. The actual building itself was divided up into two, two rooms. The, the larger of the two rooms, the entry room, is called the holy place. And then the second room, which was separated by a veil or a curtain, uh, that was called the holy of holies. Now, inside the holy place, you had the table of showbread where the priest would put uh, loaves of bread before the Lord. And then you also had the altar of incense, which sat right in front of the curtain that went into the Holy of Holies. Uh, And so so at this point in time, the Ark of the Covenant would have been missing from the Holy of Holies, okay? Because that would have been destroyed uh, when Babylon came in. And so, of course, Indiana Jones found it, thankfully. Uh, No. They actually, some claim that they know where the Ark is. Uh, They said that there was a Jewish man walking on the Temple Mount, and he died. And I I, I saw that spot where supposedly he died. And that was a sign that that's where the Ark is buried under the Temple Mount. Uh, Ethiopians say that they actually have the Ark of the Covenant down in Ethiopia in a church. Who knows? Uh, (laughs) But nonetheless... um, it makes for good lore and, and, and discussion, you know. So maybe one of you will go find it. That would be cool. So good luck. <laughs> so Godspeed. All right. Um, but uh, so uh, uh, we're going to see that uh, Abide, the, the division of Abijah was called up to go serve. Zacharias is a part of that division. Now Zacharias and his wife have a problem. They were both right, now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. You can just leave that up for a moment. This is a really important commentary on who Zechariah and Elizabeth are. The reason why this is important is the following verse, verse 7. Go ahead and pull up verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. You see, one of the thoughts in that period of time is it's, it's as if it's not bad enough to be barren and deal with that, that, that uh, in a way, loss if you're trying to have a child. And some of you have experienced that or are going through that. But, but then on top of that, to have everybody start to question your own godliness in this regard. Uh, because that's what often people thought. You must be cursed by God. God must hate you because you can't have a baby. Uh, you must have done something wrong. And I know that sounds really mean and, and almost archaic and prehistoric, but understand that there was a promise given in the law to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13. 
And Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13 says, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock, in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give to you. And so here's a promise from the law that God will do this. And so it's easy for people by the time of the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth to say, oh, you must have not been obedient to God. That's why. Now, the, this promise is given to the people of Israel as a whole. Okay, it's a promise to Israel's obedience as a whole, not an individual's obedience. But that's what people do, right? They take the word and they start to twist it and they use it to beat up other people with it. And, and that's, that's not healthy. But nonetheless, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were barren and they were well advanced in, a, in years. You know what that means, well advanced in years? It means outside of childbearing. It means a little bit too far along, Okay. Uh, that's what, that's what uh, we're being told by well advanced in years. It means that season of your life has passed, okay? And so uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias move forward in life. Well, verse 8 says, <clears throat> So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, understand, there are a lot of priests at this point in time. And there are a lot of priests in his division. 24 divisions, serving twice a year, uh, going to the temple once a week here. So, so, so this is a big deal. Elijah has been, the lot has been cast, and that could be, uh, similar to a drawing of straws or a casting of dice. We don't really know what lots were but, uh, or throwing of, of rocks of some sort. But, it, but we know that it was used in the Old Testament and New Testament for saying, look, God can tr- control this and we're going to do this before the Lord and the Lord will choose who he wants. And so the lot fell on Zacharias. This very well could have been a once-in-a-lifetime event for him to go into the temple and, and minister before the Lord in this way. And so Zacharias, uh, and of course, uh, by the way, if you have a modern translation, it says Zechariah. The New King James says Zacharias. So just uh, it both, both are accurate. It could be either name. But um, so Zacharias goes into the temple to minister before the Lord. Notice what the people are doing. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So it's, it's a special moment of worship. For the people of Israel, when this event happens, the priests are out there praying, people are gathered up, he's going in and, and they're waiting for smoke to start rising up out of the temple. It's a big deal. And uh, as, as he goes into the temple, we read in verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I, I can only imagine what this scene was like as Zechariah goes in. Remember how many years it's been since they've heard from the Lord? 435 years, okay? So it, it, it has become more common to not hear from God than to hear anything from God at this point in time. And, and so Zacharias goes in to minister before the Lord. He's doing things. He looks up and there's an angel just standing on the right side of the altar. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't like that. I, whatever, however it was, I, I'm sure, obviously, it was startling to Zacharias. He was troubled. Fear fell upon him. I can only think that maybe he was even afraid that my time is up. I'm, did I do something? You know, why is there an angel of the Lord here? And uh, what an awesome sight this angel must have been. And, of course, this gives us a totally different picture than then the precious moments, angels, right? The little, yeah, whatever. <laughs> fear, he's troubled. Fear falls upon him as he sees this angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now we're going to go through this systematically, but I wanted to read this whole paragraph here as, as Zacharias is giving the announcement. He says, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer has been heard. I can't help but ask the question, what prayer? Because already in the story we hear he's well advanced. Well, they're, they're well beyond childbearing years. That, that, that ship has set sail. I, I, and even from uh, Zacharias' response to the angel, it doesn't seem like he went into the temple asking God that he would have a baby. I can't help but think from the context that when the angel says, your prayer has been heard, he's talking a prayer that Elizabeth and Zacharias have prayed a long time ago, right? But God's timeline and God's works are different than ours. Oftentimes we petition God and we pray and we pray and we pray. And we say, God, are you even hearing me? And the Bible tells us that the prayers of the saints are like incense before the throne of God. I, I love that picture because as Zacharias goes in to light incense, and incense, you see that smoke rising through the temple and filling the temple. And, and, and of course, behind that curtain is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And of course, if the Ark of the Covenant would have been there, that's the mercy seat, which is supposed to resemble the throne of God. And as the incense is there, the throne of God, the presence of God, that, that's what it was supposed to represent. And so we, we get this picture of our prayers like incense before God. They're not going away. They're just hanging out right around him. And he hears every word. And so as Zacharias thought, well, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. It, the Lord chose, not, chose to say no to me. Who am I to question God? I'll keep serving him. I'll keep doing these things. And now all of a sudden the angel shows up and says, Hey, guess what? Your prayer has been answered. <laughs> oh, oh. I, I, I wonder if Zacharias even was trying to catch up here to the angel's announcement. Because he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Now look at what it says about John. It says, uh, you, <clears throat> you will have joy and gladness, and will rejoice at his birth. Well, of course, that... We, we know that, that uh, a baby born to a family brings lots of, birth, uh, lots of rejoicing at birth. I, I don't think there's a better spot to be than when, when a baby is first born. It's amazing. It's an incredible event. Uh, and and uh, I, I know when we first saw, when I first saw Elise born, it was like, wow, God, you're amazing. I just was so caught off guard by how, how amazing uh, that event was. But more than that, this whole idea of joy and gladness, this is associated with Messianic prophecies, the announcement of Messiah. And uh, we also read that he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, uh, and So great in the sight of the Lord, what does this mean, uh, that, that this, this one will be great in the sight of the Lord? Well, it, it, it's actually quite an amazing announcement. Matthew... 11.11, 11, uh, <clears throat> Jesus is asked about the greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And, and he responds to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus even saw John the Baptist as great. Now, again, Jesus is speaking about Becoming humble as the disciples are arguing who gets the best position in heaven, who's going to be great, you know. Uh, and then he shares about John the Baptist. I'm sure as soon as he said John the Baptist, the disciples were like, oh, man. And then, of course, he challenges them to become humble, least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but 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 clearly before the Lord John was highly valued um, and and great considered great. He'll take a Nazarite vow. That's probably what it's referring to when it says that that. Uh, He'll neither, she shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And that, that goes back to number 6, 1 through 21. You can look that up on your own, the vow of the Nazarite. But uh, there's some, uh, not to cut hair, not to drink wine, not to be in the presence of something dead. And, uh, and so we find John the Baptist, eventually once he starts his ministry, looking a little weird uh, out in the wilderness proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so I, I think that most people knew that he had this vow and was, uh, was set apart to the Lord. Notice it says he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. Uh, from his mother's womb he'll have the Holy Spirit. Now you and I as Christians might take this for granted because we know that, that when we are born again in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells, tells us that we're sealed with the Spirit. And, uh, and of course... We know that there are times when the Spirit comes upon us for an empowering. Uh, but, but that wasn't so in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant because God hadn't put His Spirit on their hearts. In fact, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. So, so when someone had the Spirit of God come upon them, that was for a special working of God. It was the sign of a prophet, a king, or, or the like, somebody set apart to God. And here we're told that he's going to have the Holy Spirit from the womb. Luke one forty one, the same chapter, when Mary comes and visits, and we won't get to the story of Mary this week. When Mary comes and visits, we read, um, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so even in this well the, babe, well, the baby John the Baptist was in the womb of mom. It recognized and leapt in her womb when Mary got near. <laughs> Coincidence. Wow, that's amazing. No. Listen, I, I, I think this is cool. Uh, this is a cool sign because um, I think sometimes in church we think um, children have lesser Holy Spirit. And we've got more mature Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, we, press, we, we process things from a different mature light. But, but I think children have the same Holy Spirit that you and I get. And uh, it, it, it is actually a tragedy when we don't involve children in spiritual conversations. We don't have spiritual conversations. I recognize that there are things that children are ready to handle or learn. We went and saw the Jesus Revolution uh, last weekend, with, and I, as I shared last week, uh, with our kids, and uh, I, <laughs> I should have read about it before we went and gone, so I got to prep my youngest, Lucy, who's 11. I mean, she's old enough, but but they deal with uh, overdose and drugs in the movie, and so we come out of the movie theater, and she's like, what was the green foam coming out of her mouth, Dad? Why do people do drugs? <laughs> and uh, so I was like, okay, we're going to be talking about this for the next week. Uh, but... But uh, certainly there are things that, that children aren't ready to deal with. And, of course, Lucy's old enough to, to start learning that and dealing with that. But, but uh, we, we process certain things for children as they are ready. But certainly when it comes to the scriptures, we can have deep, meaningful, spiritual conversations with our children and young, and young children. Uh, and, and honestly, sometimes it's really fun to hear their responses to the word of God because it's simple. It's lively, and it's true, and it's just incredible. So, I, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing STS stories in church with children, because we get adults and children talking about God together, and we get perspective of children, and oftentimes we get great observations from children. Love it. And so, uh, so John is told that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Verse 16 says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, uh, I can see Zacharias wondering, what does this all mean? Except for the fact that 435 years earlier, there was a prophet 
And Malachi prophesied on behalf of the Lord, Malachi 3.1. It says, Malachi 3.1. Okay, it's time for a coffee break. Okay, there we go. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now Malachi 3, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.1 tells us that God will send a messenger. And the messenger's purpose is to what? To prepare the way uh, before the Lord. Okay, he's going to be preparing the way of Messiah. And the picture is clear. We, we might not think of the picture, but before a king would come, uh, they, would, they would clean up the roads, get rid of the rocks, make it smooth, the path. Uh, do what you can to prepare a way for a coming king. Uh, because you, you don't want to act like you don't care if the king is coming. That's a bad idea. It's bad for your people. It's not going to go over well with the king. They're like, oh, we didn't know you were coming today. Sorry, let me clean up the house, right? Or uh, whatever the case is, excuse the mess, right? Uh, and, uh, but no, for a king you'd prepare. So Malachi prophesies that God will send a messenger to prepare the people to receive the king. Then in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 5, through 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, their hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so Malachi 4, 5, and 6 tells us that, that there's this spirit of, or this Elijah that will come beforehand. And, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So as, as the angel is announcing this to, to Zacharias, it's clear he's speaking about this prophecy in Malachi that, hey, the, the time of fulfillment is coming. Now, we know that this prophecy of Malachi is both a already and not yet because it was already fulfilled in John, but we also see that it's a not yet in the coming uh, day of the Lord, the day of destruction, which is still yet in the, the great tribulation period. We'll see that happen also. But, but here, uh, the angel wants John to, Zacharias to know that, hey, this, God is doing this now. Now, Matthew chapter 17, the, the, the disciples started questioning this because people were saying, hey, we think, we think that you, Jesus might be Elijah. And, and so in, in 17.10, the disciples asked Jesus saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? See, they were reading Malachi. And they were wondering, hey, wait a minute. If you're here, why do they say Elijah has to come first? Where are they getting that from, Jesus? And so Jesus says this, verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And so Jesus even revealed this. To the disciples that, yeah, John the Baptist is that, that who the prophet Malachi was speaking of when he said Elijah must come first. It was in that, the order of the prophets, uh, Elijah. So, verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Well, that's a good question. Not to an angel, friends. Don't ask an angel, how do I know? It's a bad idea. Verse 19, and the angel answered and said to them, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now that, that right there is an awesome title. I am Gabriel. How do I know this will happen? I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Whoa, should not have asked. <laughs> I, I mean, that is like, that alone is a mic drop moment. <laughs> it's like, who are you to even question my authority? Now, Gabriel is interesting because Gabriel, we read about four times in Scripture uh, by, by name. Two of them are in the book of Daniel. And, and those two in the book of Daniel have to do with the Jewish people. 
It has to do in Daniel 8 with the, the coming kingdoms. And Daniel 9, the answer for the, the, the fulfillment of prophecy with the coming of Messiah, the Messiah being cut off, and then ultimately into the, the end times. And so Gabriel announces that to Daniel early on. That, and the first time we meet the angel Gabriel is in the book of Daniel, that, or by name, the first time we meet him. Maybe he appeared other times, but we just don't get his name. Now he appears and he announces himself to Zechariah and says, I am Gabriel. Uh, and, and I'm sure Zacharias would have fully known because up to this point we only get eight names of two angels. We get the name of Gabriel and the name of Michael. And that is it in the Old Testament. Those are the only two names of angels we get in the Old Testament. And so it would be easy for Zacharias to go, oh crud, <laughs> sorry I asked. And, and, and he says, and, uh, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. I came to give you good news. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Verse 20, I think, is, uh, <clears throat> is incredible. Because verse 20 uh, shows us both the consequences of unbelief but also the graciousness of God. Oftentimes we fail to believe God and his word is true and we suffer consequences as a result. Those consequences, when we fail to believe God, that, that when, we fail to, when we reject his word, when we go, well, God doesn't really mean that. Certainly he doesn't really mean that. We find that we've destroyed relationships with other. We have a breakdown of communication with our spouses or with friends. Uh, and so on. We, we find that uh, we, we falter in our finances and, and so on and so on. We, we deal with real consequences when it comes to sin. But at the same time, God is so gracious with us that he doesn't just write us off and say, well, due to your unbelief, you are no longer worthy. You're out of here, buddy. You're done. And, and notice what the angel doesn't do. The angel doesn't say, well, guess what? Send in the next priest. Well, I'll bring the, we'll bring the baby through that one. You know, that's not what the angel does. It says, okay, because you didn't believe, here's the consequence. You're not going to speak until everything takes place. But it'll still take place, and it'll be fulfilled in their time. So, so the, I think that's a really important concept for us to grab hold of is how gracious God is with us even when we rebel, even when we uh, refuse to believe him, even when we sin. And, and I've told people over and over when they thoroughly wrecked their life with sin, when they thoroughly have destroyed and, and, and done a scorched earth policy in their own life, that, hey, you know what? Uh, let me tell you something about our God. Our God is the God of the living. Our God knows how to resurrect even those who have scorched their life. Our God knows how to take this and use it for his glory, and you're good. And I don't know how he does it. I don't even know why he does it. I don't even like you. It's true. You guys, I, I, come on. You guys have never liked somebody who's been a total jerk? Come on. I didn't say I didn't love and invest time in. Yeah, I wouldn't choose to hang out with them. So, but, but the fact is, is our God does miracles with, with our unbelief. And I think that's an important promise to hold on to. And just like he does it with, with uh, Zacharias. I, I probably am too real with you guys the last two Sundays. I probably should pull back. I remember uh, in school ministry, one of the pastors was saying that for him it was almost a contest when people are crazy with him, like speak craziness. People, people speak craziness. And so for him it was like a goal to see if he could outlast them in their craziness. Uh, yeah, none of you guys are that way. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just that whole idea of, of being responsive and not writing people off. Uh, so, so uh, we, verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. I think they thought he might be dead or something happened. Verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them. And remained speechless. So he's doing charades up there. Like, 
trying to tell him something happened. How do you how do you do charades about the angel? <laughs> I knew somebody was gonna do this. <laughs> a bird, an eagle, a chicken, what? So <laughs> So he beckoned them, but he remained speechless. He couldn't talk. Verse 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Uh, And notice that even she felt that she was reproached among the people because she was barren. Now I want to point this out to you. Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mary had a, a supernatural pregnancy. John or Zacharias and Elizabeth have a natural pregnancy uh, under unnatural circumstances, being they're well advanced in years. But he still went home. He still knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth. So don't don't confuse those two things. And. Um, and so Mary's rejoicing, Elizabeth is rejoicing. Now, uh, in closing tonight, I want to take you down to verse 57. We're, we're going di- to pick up with Mary next week. But in verse 57, I, th- I think this part is awesome. Verse 57 says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So everybody's celebrating. Verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. So Zacharias had clearly given the message to Elizabeth that his name is going to be John. So it's the eighth day after born. They're coming to circumcise. And they want to name the boy. And by the way, still in a lot of cultures today, they name the child after birth. Like a few days after birth, they have a whole naming ceremony. uh, And it's a big deal in a lot of cultures. Well, this is one of those ones eight days after they're going to name the boy. And uh, they want to name Zacharias. So Elizabeth says, no way. But guess what? They don't believe her. Verse 61. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Verse 62. This is the funny part. So they made signs to his father. What he would have them called. Now, they act like he's deaf. (laughs) So so it's not bad enough that you just can't talk, but now everybody acts like you're deaf around you. So they're making signs. All right, Elizabeth, uh, do you really want John or, sorry, Zacharias? Do you want John or do you want Zacharias? Because they don't believe Elizabeth. So, verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. I, I love this story. The story of Zacharias and Elizabeth is a truly beautiful story. And it's a reminder that God is a God of the impossible. That there is nothing outside of God. And, and actually, I like to, I like to I, when we read the stories of Scripture, we realize that God likes to do it in a way that we would abandon and say that's impossible. Because then God gets all the glory. Then God gets all the praise. And when we find ourselves in situations where we have to exercise faith because the situation seems dire, it seems impossible, we don't know how to proceed, let me encourage you, proceed in faith. Because it is in those moments where you step forward in faith, where you, you commit yourself in faith, that I believe my God is the God of the impossible and I will move forward as such. And we find that we get to see God do marvelous things and, and you know what? He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. And we just, we just go, Lord, you are amazing how you work. And notice that all the people around him, as soon as his tongue is loosed, after he named the child just as the angel told him, it says that fear came on all who dwelt around them. The idea there is not that they were afraid of John's tongue speaking, 
but they had fear and awe or reverence toward God. That they recognized that this truly is a work of God. And notice the question, what kind, kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. They recognized that there's something special about this child. And I think that that's one of the amazing things about John the Baptist. And, and as we see these birth stories happening in the Gospel of Luke, that there's people already starting to watch us as God uh, watch as God is waking up His people Israel to receive their Messiah. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your wonderful promises. And Lord God, we thank you that you never abandon us. And right now, we want to confess sin to you, Lord. If you're in this room and you you recognize that you've been walking in unbelief. You haven't believed God in his word and you've been choosing to reject his truth. I want you to just encourage you right now. You pray, Lord God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for my unbelief. Thank you for not abandoning me. Lord, we give you all the praise. We thank you, Lord God, that you love us even when we don't show you love. God, that you care for us and you meet our needs even when we're choosing to go our own way and act like we're independent. God, we thank you for your love. And we thank you, Lord God, that you never abandon us, that you won't forsake us. We thank you for your wonderful promises. And I pray that you just do a marvelous work among each and every one in this congregation as we seek you, as we seek to honor you. Lord, this lesson has been learned tonight that we will not question your word. But we will move in faith. And we thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Zacharias gives a wonderful prophecy, uh, after John the Baptist's birth, he, he says, To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God, him, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That's the purpose of Jesus Christ, that we might be able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. And, of course, for us who believe on Jesus Christ, that's eternity. It's pretty awesome. May God bless you. May he keep you. May he give you his peace. Amen.